following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, we're in uh, Exodus chapter 20. Um, so let me read uh, from verses 20 through 22, I'm sorry, 18 through 26. Uh, and this is right, to get the context, this is right after God has just given the Ten Commandments, spoken from the mountain in, in, in fire and clouds and thunder, uh, spoken to the Israelites, uh, these powerful words of, of actually, as we looked last week, of covenant community. Moses stole my idea. <laughs> um, covenant community, because it's the beginning of the beginning of the covenant section of Exodus where God explains the, the conditions of his covenant relationship with them between God and the people of Israel. And so at the conclusion of God speaking out these words, this is what, this is what happens next. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, so that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Um, it's, it's hard for us to really appreciate uh, all that, that's happening here on, on, on Mount Sinai with God and the people of Israel. Uh, largely because it's just hard for us to imagine this mountain on fire and smoke and God's voice. But more than that, the, the problem for us is that we've lived now for uh, 3,000 years or more with the results of what God spoke on that day uh, at Mount Sinai. And for us, our understanding of who God is and what worship is is so different that we read it and we, we're not really you know, inspired by it. So I want to help us today to kind of go back and really uh, see what worship is. See, I want you to look at your relationship with God and, and what it means for you to worship and serve Him. I want you to kind of back out of your own cultural perspective and really see it from what it looked like at the time of the exile. The time of the exile, all religions of the world, everywhere, universally, practiced idolatry. Uh, and, and what this meant is that people had this idea that the rule that there were many gods, not one sovereign, huge, 
you know, almighty creator God, but there were many little gods who were local. And uh, they didn't live in the heavens ruling over all of time and space. They were, they were local gods who lived in certain specific locations. So there, were, there was the god of the Nile who just hovered out over the Nile River. Uh, there were other gods in Canaan, and they each had their own sphere of influence and power. Uh, but they, they were also seen to, to exist not really on earth, but they did exist somehow in the heavens above the earth. And so what was required was an idol as a means of connecting, as a means of getting this God's attention. And the way this worked, again, it's, it's hard for us to understand this, if, especially from, if you're from a Western culture, where we just don't think this way in terms of, of God. But uh, for them, what, what they believed is that, you know, to get this God's attention, he's way far away in heaven. And, you know, you can get on top of the tallest mountain, you could yell as loud as you possibly could, but that God can't hear you. And so you need a means of communication, and for lack, of a, for lack of a better analogy, it's kind of like you need a good Wi-Fi hub, right? Because the only way you're going to connect with this God is through a good Wi-Fi signal. And so you need some kind of device that, that you, can, you as an individual can connect uh, with a good Wi-Fi signal that has a connection to this God. So they believe that, that that's what an idol was about. An idol was a way of, of building some representation of the God that, uh, that in some way characterized him. And through very special rituals and ceremonies, somehow a piece of this God would get embedded in the idol. And, and so it became kind of a portal for you or a Wi-Fi hub where when you would go, uh, the God couldn't hear you far away, but through the idol, he could hear you. And so you would pray to him, and that's how you would communicate, kind of like a telephone or a Wi-Fi connection with the God. Um, and, and, and you would sacrifice... You, you would go through rituals to get the God's attention and manipulate him into doing, uh, him or her doing whatever you, you needed help with uh, to somehow obligate them. So, so for them, you just got to say, this is, this is the context that Israel was in. This was how you connected with the gods, was through an image that had some piece of the idol in it, I mean some piece of the God in the idol, and you would come and you would bow before this image and somehow you would get the God's attention and you could communicate. And without that, there was no hope that the God could ever hear you or would respond or would do what you said. And it's important for us to understand this because uh, as you see throughout Israel's history, in spite of the Ten Commandments, in spite of God's warnings, there was this huge temptation for Israel to bow to idols. And for the next thousand years, they, they were plagued constantly with corrupting their worship of God with idolatry. Uh, not only worshiping other gods, but trying to worship God through, through, through graven images. And they just couldn't imagine. See, they just can't imagine how could God, who's so far away in heaven, hear us? How could he possibly know who we are or what we need without some idol image? So, so that was the world that they lived in and, and uh, where they're coming from. And, of course, uh, when they were still in, in Egypt uh, and Moses came and told Pharaoh, you need to let my people go, the reason was, he says, you need to let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. And so God brought them out of Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai, and now he wants them to worship. But they have no idea how to worship this God who's so different who's so unlike the gods of, of, of Egypt and of Canaan where they will soon go. 
How do they worship Him? If they don't have an idol to bow down before, what does their worship look like? If they don't have, if they don't need to perform rituals and ceremonies to get the God's attention, what do they do? Right? Just sit around and twiddle their thumbs. I mean, what does this look like? This is so new and radical for them. Um, so, at the end of the Ten Commandments, and actually in the process of, of giving the Ten Commandments, uh, God appears to them personally. He, he makes His very presence known to them in this incredibly powerful way where every single Israelite hears the, the voice of God. They hear God speaking His Ten Commandments. And they see this, these signs of these, you know, this mountain on fire and shaking and this thunder roaring. Right? They encounter God's presence in a very real and powerful way. And through this, God begins to teach them how different worship, His worship will be and what it will look like for them to worship Him. And it's not real clean and tidy in this passage, so it kind of gets mixed up. But, but I want to highlight four qualities or four elements of what worship was to look like for them. And uh, much of the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers actually unpacks this. But here he gives a brief blueprint, a quick snapshot of, of how worship is to be just radically different for them. And it involves encounter, response, heart, and communion. Okay, so we'll look at each of those. Encounter, response, heart, and communion. Um, and for us, uh, I believe the, we, we worship the same God. Right? So what God is telling Israel here is identical to what he would say to you and I about how he wants to be worshipped. A lot of confusion about the Old and New Testament. But, but know this, God is never worshipped differently in the Old Testament from the New. He is a God who is the infinite, eternal, unchanging God. And how he sought to be worshipped in the Old Testament is exactly the same as how he still chooses and seeks to be worshipped today. So this is very relevant for us. Uh, and I hope, as I said, as we, as we step back and try to see what this all looked like through their pagan, uh, you know, very influenced by idolatry uh, eyes, it will help us sharpen and think more clearly about what our own worship is to look like. Um, so first off, they, uh, worship begins, all worship of, of the true and living God, true worship begins with encounter. Okay, encounter. Um, and uh, the, the people at Mount Sinai encountered God, and it was really more than they bargained for, right? It says, when all the people saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, uh, the mountain smoking... The people were afraid and trembled and stood far off. Um, God shows up at the mountain and he makes, uh, in the most visible way up to this point, he reveals his presence to them in, in a very dramatic and powerful way. And um, th there's no doubt about the fact that they have encountered God. Right? Nobody was saying, well, that was quite the thunderstorm, right? Nobody was saying, well, what a coincidence that a... You know, a storm rolled through just as you know, God was giving. No, they knew that they had encountered God in a very real and dramatic way. Um, and uh, God has been revealing himself. Actually, he's been showing up in many ways. But, but this, was, this, was, this, this beat them all. Right? They, they met God very much in a way that was face-to-face. -face. And their experience um, as they encountered him was actually quite overwhelming um, and it's interesting, they didn't even see God's glory. They actually only heard his voice. 
But uh, that voice was terrifying, like terrifying. Uh, it was not an encounter that left them feeling a lot of warm fuzzies. And, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting to me that uh, people in the world today, uh, I think non-Christians and Christians alike, have this picture of God as this kind of jolly Santa Claus fellow who's just a very kind, accepting, loving, grandfatherly kind of person who when anybody comes into his presence, they, they instantly feel this deep warmth and acceptance and welcome. Right? And if you ask people who, who aren't believers, who don't know would not claim to be followers of Christ. You ask them, do you want to go to heaven? I think most of them would say, yeah, I want to go to heaven. Heaven sounds like a wonderful place. Do you want to meet God? Yeah, I'd love to meet God. He sounds like a jolly old chap, right? And, uh, but when you read through the Bible, especially through the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, God is not a being that, is, that leaves you feeling warm fuzzies. Right? right? Time and time again, when his prophets and others encounter him, they're terrified. And their, their first response is to is either fall dead on their face or to flee from God's presence. And that's exactly what happens here. The people uh, are so terrified that they draw away from God. Uh, they, they run away. They hide from him. They do not want to be near him. Uh, well, why is it such a terrifying experience? Well, he's a holy God, bottom line. He's a holy God. And when sinful, fallen human beings come before such holiness and perfection, it cannot help but make us feel incredibly unworthy and out of place. Have you ever gotten to a, invited a party that was like way over your head, like way over your league, and you realize it's a problem when everybody's wearing tuxedos and these very elegant gowns, and you just happen to be wearing blue jeans and a T-shirt, and you're going, I should have read the invitation more carefully, right? Well, that's kind of how it is, only at infinitely greater levels. The sense of, I am way out of place in God's presence. I do not belong here. I am not worthy to stand before him. Um, and and uh, Moses explains uh, that they should not be afraid. Um, uh, but God does this to, uh, so that they will take seriously his commands. It's a little ironic. He says, don't be afraid. God gave you this experience so that you would be afraid. Okay, a little confusing. Uh, and we'll see why in a minute. But literally, uh, the, the purpose is here is that, uh, that God is very different than the gods they are worshipped and his, that they have worshipped worshipped or seen worshipped. And his worship is to be radically different. Radically different. So the solution is not to run and hide. Uh, because where can you hide from God, right? Where can you escape his presence? And that's, that's how different this God is. Uh, they are to draw near to God, but not in the way of the pagan gods. It must be very different. Um, and, and, and essentially, as, uh, as they encounter God, God's presence, there's two significant things that, that stand out about this encounter. First is they are encountering not only his presence, but they're really encountering God's power, and we see that through all these displays. Um, uh, but most significantly, if you jump down to verse 22, God says something very interesting. He says in verse 22, uh, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. What's that all about? You've seen for yourselves that I have t- I've spoken with you from heaven. 
which by the way, there's a lot of confusion on this because he was just at the top of the mountain, not necessarily from heaven. Um, but what does he mean by that? Well, I think he means this. Look, I'm a, I'm a God who's everywhere present. I am as far away as you can get. I am at the farthest heaven of heavens. But at the same time, I am right here, right? I don't need a Wi-Fi connection, right? I can speak to you from heaven, and I will, I will hear you from heaven. Okay, he's a God of infinite power. He doesn't need devices or mechanisms or internet to connect with you, right? He can go from the depths of heaven into the piercing depths of your heart right, in a fraction of a second. He's a God of incredible power. Uh, and they had seen this power over and over as God had uh, poured out his, his plagues of power on the Egyptians as he brought them through the Red Sea, as he brought forth water from the rock and manna from heaven. And now the mountain is on fire. And they had experienced in so many ways his power uh, in real and tangible ways. And he says, I, I am capable to speak to you from wherever. And when I speak, you will hear me. And when you speak, I will hear you. But secondly, they also experience not only his power, but they really are experiencing and have been experiencing God's incredible grace. Right, step by step, God has been using his power not just to show off, not just to scare them, not just to terrify them, but his power has been directed at saving them, at rescuing them, at helping them. Um, verse 24, he says this, An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it in your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered... I will come to you and bless you. Now this verse, the translators of the ESV have very much followed the word order of the original Hebrew. But the sense of it actually is kind of flipped around. I think in our brains it will make more sense if we read it like this. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, there in those places I want you to build me an altar. Okay, we'll talk a little bit later about the altar and what that all means. But, but he's, he's saying here, look, I as we journey along, I have been... I have been doing things to make my name remembered. What does he mean by that? Well, he means I'm doing things in your life that are unforgettable. Like, remember the Red Sea? Yeah, who could forget it, right? The whole sea split apart. We walked through on dry land. The Egyptian chariots followed us in and God swallowed them up. We're not going to forget that, right? It's very memorable. He says, throughout your history, I am going to continue to do that sort of thing. Through my power and my grace, I'm going to do saving works in your lives that's going to cause my name to be remembered. And at that time in those events, you're to build a, uh, an altar to me. Right? And he says, that in those times, uh, I will come to you and I will bless you. Right? God's purpose in all this is not just to scare the daylights out of them, although he's done a pretty good job of that so far. But he says, look, I want, I'm doing this because I want to come to you I want to come to you close and near and personal, and I want to bless you with my kindness and my grace. Uh, so, so that's the first thing that they see in this, is God's going to make his name remembered by his display of power and by his saving works. Uh, but secondly, he says, when, when God displays his power in saving you, you're to respond in worship. You're to build an altar. So he's, so he's like, they don't know how to do this. So he's saying, look, this is how it's going to work. I'm going to... I'm going to make my name great. I'm going to prove to you my grace. I'm going to do incredible works in your life. And when that happens, 
At that moment and in that place, you're to build an altar. What was an altar about? Well, an altar was simply a big barbecue pit. Right? That's basically all it is. It's a place to, to burn uh, animal sacrifices. It says, I want you to make an altar, and at the altar I want you to offer to me your burnt offerings and your, your peace offerings. Um, and it's, again, it's important to note the, the, the difference between what they had always seen. In their world, offerings were, were brought to altars, and they knew what altars were. They knew what burnt offerings were. They knew what peace offerings were. And they were done as rituals to get the God's attention. But God's saying, here, look, you, you've got my attention. Not only, not only that, but you've got my presence. You've experienced me working already, doing incredible things in your life. Your bringing offerings is to be a response, a response to what I have already done in your life. Right? This is totally, totally, again, totally different from what it, what it looked like to worship the idols that they were familiar with. Uh, they were not to just go around making and putting up idols wherever they wanted. Right? They were not free to just decide, well, this is a nifty spot. Let's, let's build an idol here and let's worship God and let's see if we can get God to you know, give us stuff. It doesn't work that way. Of course, they could pray to God. They could ask God for things. They could seek his help. Um, but sacrifices and altars in, in worship were to be the result of encountering God's presence and grace and power. Same for us, right? Worship for us always begins with God coming to us where we encounter him, right? where we meet him, where God does something significant in our life. Okay, what happens then? So we encounter God. Um, and we'll talk more in our own life how that looks for us. But we, we have this encounter. They had this encounter with God. What would they do? They were supposed to respond by building these altars and, and offering sacrifices. Um, and to do that, it meant they needed to draw near to God. But what's interesting on the mountain, if you go back to verse 20, uh, God said, Do not fear, God has come to test you, uh, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. But the people stood far off. While Moses drew near into the thick darkness. What an amazing contrast. Amazing contrast. God shows up at this mountain. He reveals himself. They have this incredible God encounter. Incredible God encounter. And there are two responses. One is to, is to stand far away, to distance themselves from God. The other is to draw, is to draw near. Uh, clearly, worship is not running away. Uh, and Moses says to them, you know, you, you, you're doing the wrong thing, right? God did not do this to chase you off. Uh, he did it uh, to draw you near to him, but to draw you near to him in a way that you have the greatest awe and respect of him, right? So fear here, and there's two kinds of fear. There is a kind of fear that chases people off. And uh, apparently that's how the Israelites took it. Right, this is too much. We just want to get away. This is too terrifying. We just want to get away from God's presence. But that was not the purpose. He says, God did not do this to give you a kind of fear to, to chase you away, but it's a fear that's intended to change you. See, there's something you know is inherently wrong that you must change inwardly in order to stand before this holy God. 
What they needed not, was not to run away or turn away. What they needed was repentance. They needed was a different kind of heart. Um, how many Christians uh, have encountered God, but instead of being drawn near to Him, live distant from Him? Because they fail to understand God's grace. For many years in my life and my Christian journey, I felt so unworthy because I did not appreciate how perfect Christ's forgiveness was. Right? That I stood before God absolutely holy and blameless through the blood of Jesus. And so I was in some level fearful of God, trying to make myself good enough to be worthy of Him. Right? We should, we should fear God and there should be a sense of repentance. But the only solution is the blood of Jesus. Um, right, so they're to draw near, but of course to do that, um, they recognize that, that, that they need help. Right? Uh, they are to, to draw near uh, with the purpose of bringing offerings, of, of building this altar to respond to God in worship. And again, this is not about empty rituals. Uh, it is about responding with obedience to what God has done in their life. Um, and there's some very specific instructions about the altar that's really interesting. He says you're, you're, you're not to worship gods of silver and gold. And, and uh, an altar of earth you shall make for me. Or if you make it a stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield a tool on it, you will profane it. Um, so much were they to avoid idols and idolatry that even their altars were to be simple and, and natural. Now, of course, we know later on, in fact, towards the end of the book of Exodus, God actually gives them instructions to build an altar. Uh, but the point is this. Uh, there's nothing about their worship that should be uh, creation, a creation of man. Right? They're not supposed to be inventing and creating and, and coming up with their own plan of how to worship God. Not even in their altar are they to be designing their own altar. Right? It's to come from God and His instructions. Uh, God would give them uh, a design, and, and once He gave them the design, they could build it. But until then, nothing but dirt or unhewn rocks. Right? Nothing about it was to uh, be like the pagan worship around them. Now, does that mean that we in our worship cannot be somewhat creative? Right? It's great to have Hannah here creating a beautiful painting. Uh, super cool. Uh, does it mean we can't, you know, we're not supposed to be creative or inventive? Well, absolutely not. The psalmist is full of the creation of praises, right? The expression of music and art to celebrate God. Uh, but the point is this. It all must be firmly anchored to his revelation in Scripture. Right? Worship is never something we can make up apart from what he's revealed of, of himself in his word. All right, so, so worship is a response. Uh, it's a response of bringing gifts, of bringing worship, of bringing their offerings to God. Um, fourth, a third element sorry, is heart. Do this one real quick. Um, uh, they were to love God, right? Later on in Israel's history, they got really good at the whole sacrifice thing. Um, but oftentimes the prophets condemned them because 
They gave offerings, but their heart was not right. Isaiah puts it this way. The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Very interesting verse in light of Exodus, right? Uh, They were coming with the wrong heart. Uh, They were to come, first and foremost, with the heart that loved God. They were to do this to worship because they wanted to please God, because they had met him and loved him. Um, they were to be obedient, right? They were to, uh, they were to fear God and obey his commands. Uh, but we all know that no matter how much we love God, no matter how much we want to please him, we all know that we sin. And so um, in verse uh, Verse 20, 21, he says, uh, you, you're, to, you're to bring a burnt offering. What is a burnt offering? Well, a burnt offering is an is a animal that was burned whole on the altar. The whole thing. Burned completely, consumed by the fire. And it was done as a means of atonement for sin. So he says, first step, when you come, you bring your offering. The first thing is, you need to deal with your sin. Of course, uh, we don't do this anymore, right? Uh, we do have a pig roast, <laughs> but that would not be this, just to be clear, right? Um, we do not offer a burnt offering. Why? Because we know that all of that pointed to Jesus, who was the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sin. Right? Jesus took upon himself our sin, and by his blood, as we read this morning, our sins are forgiven. Our heart is made right with God through the atoning work of Jesus. Colossians 1, 21-22 puts it this way, And you who are once alienated from God and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, God has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Really, Jesus has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Our hearts are made acceptable before God through the blood of Jesus. Cannot worship right, unless you are made acceptable before God first. Last thing, fourth thing, communion. And this is really the coolest part of it all. Uh, he says again, An altar of earth you shall make for me. You shall burn on uh, your burnt offerings and you shall offer your peace offerings. What's the difference between a burnt offering and a peace offering? Real quick. A peace offering actually was um, a bit more like a pig roast, only it could never be pork. <laughs> um, but it was a barbecue where you cooked the animal on the, on the altar to the point where it could be eaten, and then you actually took it off and you shared it together as a meal. It was a meal that you ate together, but you ate it uh, before the presence of God. Uh, it was a peace offering. Uh, it, it comes from the word shalom. And really it has the idea of, of, and is sometimes translated a fellowship offering or a communion offering. It was, it was a picture of eating a meal together in God's presence or with God, in fellowship and communion with Him. Now imagine, just, just put yourself for a minute in, in the shoes of the Israelites. Right? Just, just imagine that your world, all you know about God's, is that they live far away, inaccessible in the heavens. 
The, the, the closest you can get to them is to come and bow down before some gold statue of them and hope that if you, if you do the right ceremonies and you yell loud enough and you do all the right things, that somehow your words go into that idol and somehow get zapped up to the God and the God somehow pays attention to you and maybe will help you. Right? That's all you know of, of, God, of the gods and, and of worship. And, and it's just, it's, the gods are distant, right? And all of a sudden, the God of all creation shows up and comes to you live and in person. Not through a statue, not through gold, but right there, right? From the heavens to your heart. And he says, you know, I, I want to show you my power. I want to show you my grace and my love. I, I want to make a means to forgive your sins so that you and I can sit down and have a meal together and we can be friends. Right? Can you imagine how mind-blowing this was for them? Uh, this whole, like we talk all the time about our relationship with God. They would have no idea this. What do you mean a relationship with God? Gods don't have relationships with people. But this God does, doesn't he? This God has come from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus and gave his own life on the cross. Why? So that he could have relationship with you. So you could come before him and offer fellowship offerings where you could come in and commune and give him thanksgiving and praise where you can enjoy his presence. This is radical worship in the days of Moses. And, and uh, 3,000 years later, you know, we, we just kind of take it all so much for granted, right? Like, well, yeah, like God, we're, we're friends. You know, he came, you know, we're, we're close, we're tight, right? Um, what a gift it is that you and I have the privilege of being in communion and fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus to enjoy his presence and to worship him. So worship is, right? Worship is encountering God meeting him, experiencing his power and his grace in your life, responding uh, in worship, uh, having your heart changed and transformed so that you can be an acceptable worshiper before him, so that you can live in communion with God. Uh, to put this in a New Testament context, I want to close by just reading uh, Romans 12.1. Uh, and think about these words, right, in, in, in line of what we've just talked about. Paul says, I appeal to you, I, 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 I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right? We encounter God by his mercy. That's encounter by the mercies of God. We've experienced the incredible goodness of all that Jesus has done for us. We respond how? By presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, by, by laying down not an idol, but our very life before him as a gift of worship, as a response of worship our heart 
is made holy and acceptable to God by the work of Christ, right? You and I stand before God 100% holy and acceptable, blameless before Him. Praise God, when Jesus shows up, when God comes, when you stand before judgment, you have nothing to fear, right? You will not need to run from God's presence because you will stand before Him holy and blameless, And through all that, you can have communion, which is your spiritual worship, right? To abide with Christ, to live with Him, to enjoy Him, to worship Him, to give Him praise and thanks, to dwell with Him. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.